Welcome to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash a fork in time and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening right away. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash a fork in time. Welcome back to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. I'm your host, Alexis Shelley. And for today's today's topic, we're going to be talking about something very timely as we just passed the anniversary of its occurrence. Today's topic is the explosion of the Space Shuttle Challenger, which took place on January the 28th of 1986. As always, first, let's start things off with exploring the what did happen, as we term it here on the podcast in history. As mentioned, the Space Shuttle Challenger broke apart on January 28, 1986, just 73 seconds after it lifted off from Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. All seven members of the crew on board were killed, including five astronauts, one payload specialist, and a civilian school teacher named Krista McAuliffe. She was actually part of the Teachers in Flight program, which was relatively new at the time, so she was uh, the first civilian school teacher. Uh, to go into outer space, or to attempt to go into outer space. Now, a word of warning here that the description of what caused a disaster does tend to get a little bit technical and into the weeds. It's not my intention to gloss over any aspect of the 73 seconds between liftoff and disintegration of the spacecraft, or to leave anything out, but I do want to explain what happened uh that led to the loss of the seven people on board Challenger in the most simple terms that I know how to. Uh, so in my simple overview, uh, the breakup of the spacecraft was caused by a joint in the right solid rocket booster failing at liftoff. The failure was caused by the failure of the O-ring seals used in the joint, which were not designed to handle the unusually cold temperatures that existed that morning in Florida. It was January, so it was winter, but even for Florida, it was uh, it was unusually cold. Uh, reports indicated that air temperatures hovered somewhere around 30 degrees Fahrenheit or just one degree Celsius. The failure of the O-ring seals caused a breach in a joint allowing pressurized burning gas from inside the solid rocket motor to reach outside and impinge on the adjacent joint attachment and external fuel tank. This led to the separation of the right-hand aft field joint and the structural failure of the external tank. The aerodynamic forces then took over and ultimately broke up the orbiter. So, really technical stuff, but multiple things happened, all hinging really on the failure of that O-ring not being able to do its job in light of the extreme cold temperatures it was uh dealing with that morning. Before we continue on with the what did, I want to pause here and say that I won't be spending any time on this particular podcast discussing whether or not the crew could have somehow ejected from the spacecraft and survived a crash landing. Uh, That's been the topic of many discussions, so I'm not going to 
going to chase that furry little woodland creature uh, simply because whether or not the astronauts were able to make it back to Earth alive or not does not change the fact that the structural integrity of the spacecraft is what led to the disaster and what ultimately was researched and analyzed following what happened that morning. Okay, so now let's get back to the what did. After the disaster, there was a 32-month halt to the space shuttle program and the formation of the Rogers Commission uh, to look into what caused uh, the disaster. The Rogers Commission ultimately found that NASA's organizational, organizational culture and decision-making process were key contributing factors to the accident. The commission offered nine recommendations on improving safety in the shuttle, space shuttle program, ranging all the way from design and independent oversight of the spacecraft to maintenance safeguards. And NASA was directed by President Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time, to report back within 30 days how it planned to, to implement those recommendations. Think about that 30-day time span, how NASA was uh, requested to report back within 30 days how he was going to handle it as we're going forward. Those 30 days also play a part as we go forward into uh, talking about the what if. But enough about the what did, uh, since that isn't what we focus on here at A Fork in Time. Let's turn to that what if. And I wish we had multiple alternatives to explore, but unfortunately, after all the research I did to prepare for this episode, I really only see one alternative, and that is a delayed disaster happening sometime after 1986, or even sometime later in 1986. This was only January, and we're going to talk about the timetable of NASA's space missions a little bit here in a second. So why is this the only other scenario I see? There's some simple reasons for that. Uh, NASA's push for space missions was on an unrealistic timetable, and the management of NASA was unwilling to listen to suggestions and recommendations from engineers, both within NASA itself, as well as those working for the companies contracting with NASA, like Morton Thicol, who manufactured the O-rings used on Challenger in 1986. Little bit of a side note, if you're interested in listening to a first-hand account of someone who worked at Morton Thicol, who gave his opinion that the shuttle should not be launched that January morning, due to the extreme weather conditions, but was ultimately ignored, I suggest listening to one of my other favorite podcasts, Freakonomics. On episode 169, the host of that podcast, Stephen Dubner, interviews Alan McDonald, an engineer who actually worked on the shuttle project in 1986. So continuing with the delayed disaster timeline, if the timing of a disaster is delayed by just two years, Physicist Richard Feynman would not have been available to be part of the Rogers Commission since he died in 1988. Feynman was actually already terminally ill with cancer at the time of the commission meetings. Initially, he didn't really want to be part of the proceedings. His wife actually convinced him uh, to be part of the Rogers Commission uh, when he was asked. So without Feynman on the committee, it is quite possible that the report generated by the commission would have completely whitewashed the management culture that was in place at NASA at the time that made this disaster inevitable. Feynman actually uh, compiled his findings in an appendix to the Rogers Commission report. He actually threatened to not sign the report if his findings were not included in that appendix um, because he did extensive research on the O-rings, proving that the O-rings could not handle 
uh, the extreme temperatures they were put up to that morning on January 28th. They really could only handle temperatures that were about 10 to 20 degrees warmer uh, than the projected 30 degrees. And also, if you listen to that episode of Freakonomics, uh, Alan McDonald, he talks about that topic as well, about how cold is it going to be? Uh, yeah, these O-rings aren't going to stand up to that. Um, so that's an interesting uh, side to take, that if something happened just as late as 1988, Feynman's dead, he can't be a part of the investigation after the disaster, and there might not have been the impetus to put as much of the blame on the management culture at NASA and the fact that kind of things were just getting bulldozed and kind of advice wasn't being taken. This isn't a far stretch for the imagination since even in the real timeline, as late as 1989, which is after the Rogers Commission submitted their findings, NASA was still pushing for 24 flights a year, meaning the four orbiters, including Endeavour, which was built to replace Challenger after it was lost in 1986, were supposed to be flying six times a year with only a two-month turnaround, which leaves little time to identify and properly address flaws that were found in the spacecraft's either design or function. To me, the final piece of evidence that proves that a non-disaster with Space Shuttle Challenger in January of 1986 would have just meant a later disaster with either Challenger or another spacecraft is disintegration of the Space Shuttle Columbia upon re-entry on February 1st, 2003. If you think about that, 24 flights a year, that meant all four orbiters were flying six times uh, in a year. That was the projected timeline of NASA. This is only January of 1986. Challenger was scheduled to have gone out again later on in 1986 if it had not broke up in January. So if we have a delayed disaster, if something doesn't happen in January of 1986, who's to say that Challenger later on that year or in a subsequent year doesn't have a problem or one of the other three orbiters that are in use by NASA at the time doesn't have one of those disasters as well. And one of those disa similar disasters did happen 2003. I actually remember exactly where I was uh, the morning of February 1st, 2003. I was at my grandmother's house. My parents were out of town for the weekend, so I was staying with my grandmother. I was having breakfast. And I think I was watching, you know, Saturday morning, morning cartoons. I would have been, you know, right before I would have been a teenager in 2003. So I was probably watching Saturday morning, uh, Saturday morning cartoons, Saturday morning TV. And I think the news actually broke in because uh, people were reporting parts of the space shuttle uh, were falling and they were discovering them in their yards and their fields um, and things like that. According to the Columbia Accident Investigation Board, the same flawed decision-making process that resulted in the Challenger explosion was responsible for Columbia 17 years later. So we mentioned uh, after the Rogers Commission and one of the things that uh, President Ronald Reagan passed NASA with after the Rogers Commission was coming back 30 days from the uh, reports uh, publishing and saying, like, how are you going to address this? Well, 17 years later, uh, we're still having some issues. Not to make light of anything and of the loss of life that happened with both of those spacecrafts, both Challenger in 86 and Columbia in 2003, but 30 days is a lot different than 17 years. So it seemed NASA still hadn't quite learned its lesson 
2003 with the Space Shuttle Columbia, which is why I think if we don't have the accident happening on January 28, 1986, it's not a far cry to expect a disaster later on in 1986 or in a subsequent year simply because standards are not being held up to um, decision decisions are not being made with the best of intentions um, and also with that 24 flights in a year six six flights for every orbiter too much turnaround even if there was a flaw that was discovered even uh, you see this a little bit with the O-rings. They had already discovered some problems with those O-rings, but it kind of glossed over the situation. Like, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Nothing's happened before. It'll be fine until a disaster did happen. So because of that, I don't foresee a disaster never happening, either with Challenger or one of the other three, orbita three orbiters. So it was only really with the retirement of the Space Shuttle program after the final launch of the Space Shuttle Atlantis on July 8th of 2011 uh, that the possibility of one of those disasters being avoided altogether was really finally realized. Um, we don't have space shuttles going up anymore. Uh, definitely not on the consistent basis that was expected. Uh, so only with the retirement of the program in 2011 had that really become a reality that we wouldn't have had one of the one of those disasters i think it was just for lack of a better word a ticking time bomb and kind of a waiting game uh for one of those disasters to happen so that does it for maybe a little bit more this a little bit more bleak <laughs> episode of a fork in time and what would have happened if the space shuttle challenger had made it into space on january 28th 1986 and made it back let's talk about making it back too because the uh disaster that happened in 2003 with columbia uh it made it into space that was on re-entry so making it into space is not the end of the story the space shuttle has to make it back i think it is important every once in a while to have one of these episodes like this because it really illustrates the point that we've talked about a few times on the show that just because one thing doesn't happen the same way initially as it happened uh, in the real timeline when we start talking about this alternate timeline doesn't mean that history doesn't find a way of getting to that same point through other means and through other ways. Uh, another side note, uh, I'll throw in uh, one of my favorite TV shows, Timeless. Uh, it actually was canceled. Uh, it was on uh, TV, but it uh, was canceled, but you can find it on Hulu. Um, they talk about this a while, too, where they'll try and change something, like, hey, we don't want this to happen, so hey, don't do this. And then you find out that what they were trying to prevent did ultimately happen. It just happened in a different way. I'm thinking specifically of they have a situation with President Kennedy, and they tell him, hey, don't go to Dallas. Well, in the show, he ends up dying in Austin. So he does end up still dying, just not in the way that he was originally going to die in the original timeline. So I think it's important to kind of talk about um, these subjects every once in a while and how, you know, history might find a way of getting to the ultimately same result, just in a little bit different way. I want to thank you all again for joining me today on this episode of A Fork in Time. As always, we love having you. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please visit our website at aforkintimepodcast.com. 
From there, you can see links to all of our various podcatchers where you can access the podcast. Uh, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. They will actually just appear in your feed like magic without ha you having to do any work. You don't have to press a button. They just show up if you subscribe. You'll also find links to our social media. I'm getting better, guys. Um, I can't remember if it was this was on podcast or off podcast, but my dad basically told me, like, you're in charge of Twitter. Um, and I, if you follow us on Twitter, you might have seen that I actually issued out a tweet on January 4th, which was Trivia Day. Uh, so go check that out. I'm getting better, guys. It's slowly but surely coming along. Uh, so you'll find those links to our social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, and we are on Pinterest. And those are great ways for you to connect with us, but also to let, tell other people uh, you know about the podcast. If you think it's something they might be interested in, you know, share the link. Uh, tell them to follow us. Uh, we love kind of growing our network that way. Specifically with this topic, I think several listeners might not necessarily agree with me on my take of what might have happened, so I want to hear from you. Uh, how do you think things might have been different if the Space Shuttle Challenger hadn't exploded in January of 1986? Reach out to us. I want to hear. I'm curious. Because, believe me, in the research I did, people went on some interesting rabbits and interesting, uh, interesting tangents. So I went with kind of what I thought was the most... Um, logical maybe uh but definitely people took it in some other direction so if you're one of those people who has a different take on this reach out i want to hear it last but certainly not least on that website you will find a link to our patreon page if you're so inclined and are able we would love to have you support the podcast there are some costs involved and we'd like to be able to doing able to continue doing this uh for as long as possible so if you're able to support us in that way we would greatly appreciate it but, of course, the easiest way you can support us is by giving us your time and by letting other people know about the podcast when you listen, which we greatly appreciate. I mentioned before, I listen all the time, either when I'm driving uh, between where I live in Galveston and my parents' house up in uh, Houston, which is about an hour to an hour and a half drive, depending on traffic. So that's a great time for me to listen to podcasts. I also listen in the morning when I'm getting ready for it. So uh, if you listen and you find us enjoyable... Uh, we really appreciate that. And if you would love to share this podcast with uh, others that you think might enjoy it, that'd be a wonderful as well. So this is Alexis Shelley signing off from another episode of A Fork in Time. I'll end as always with that famous Yogi Bear adage that, of course, we tweak just a little bit here on the show. If you find A Fork in Time, take it. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for listening to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Learn more about the podcast at www.aforkintimepodcast.com. Join us next time.